Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthropology and Business Podcast. Today, I'm here with Simon Roberts, co-founder and partner at Stripe Partners, current board president at Epic, previously at Red Associates, Intel, and the founder of Ideas Bazaar, the first ethnographic research company in the UK, and most recently, the author of Power of Not Thinking, which we will definitely get into today. So, Simon, thanks for coming on. really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. Uh, to begin, uh, would you mind uh, telling everybody a little bit about your origin story and how you came into anthropology? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd love to do that. The The simple answer is I came into anthropology completely accidentally um, in that I never intended to read anthropology at university. I showed up um, at a kind of course fair where you had a, I had to choose three subjects for my first year. So anthropology sounded interesting. I turned up to the first lecture and I got hooked. Um, so that was that was how it all began. It wasn't wasn't part of a grand plan. In fact, I have to confess at school I'd never heard of of anthropology. So um, so it was a it was a great accident. Yeah, it's funny how many of us uh, in anthropology have similar stories like that, you know. And for me, it was also by accident. In in many ways, I was. Uh, on a study abroad experience and somebody sort of introduced it to me. Um, I had been reading books that were really in the anthropology space, but really wasn't aware of the term. Other people I hear, you know, it's their life travels as a child that sort of just yeah. piqued the curiosity. All of us though find a very interesting way into it, but not all of us find then the path onto business. And of course that's yeah. what we'll be talking about today. So when did, um, you know, when did you start realizing that you could apply anthropology to business and, and how did that mature? Um, so I did an undergraduate degree um, at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, and and then I carried straight on to do a PhD, and and I carried on to do a PhD in part, I think, because I felt it was kind of unfinished business, um, and also because I'd spent a lot of time in India in the early nineties, and and it felt to me like a pretty simple way of spending a bit more time in India rather than getting a job to, to do a PhD that focused on India. So I didn't do a PhD with any intention of becoming an academic, actually, um, which at the time might have been possible, I think less so nowadays. Um, so that, that, that PhD, as it was coming towards an end, because I'd been studying mass media and satellite TV in India, 
I thought that somebody might be interested, somebody working in the media space might be interested to hear what I had to say. It turned out that I couldn't really find anyone that was interested in that. But I had sort of then realized that kind of taking an anthropological analysis of something like the satellite TV industry and how people watch TV, you know, that sort that should be interesting to a business in the media world, right? And if that was true, then surely other things that anthropologists could do could be relevant to, to people in business. Um, so that was a sort of a hunch. And of course, at the time, I didn't really know about the prehistory of, of kind of anthropology in, in the world of business, which is a longer history than perhaps most people realize. Um, so it was a little bit of a, it was a little bit of a, of a hunch, um, but not based on, on much more than, um, a desire in a way to find something to do with anthropology outside of academia that, that could allow me to continue to do research and think and, and sort of have intellectual stimulation rather than just go and work in a cubicle somewhere. Although I did work in a cubicle some, at some point in my career. Right. It happens to most of us at some point, right? <laughs> um, so how about, how about Ideas Bazaar? You know, like how did that all come to be? I mean, you, you, you know, when you look at it, uh, when I looked at it on your LinkedIn profile, you know, you say the first ethnographic research company yeah. in the UK. So obviously then you're, in a, you're a pretty early player in that. So just how did that all come to happen? Um, well, there's a sort of, you know, there's a short story. And then there's, I suppose, the, the real story, because actually the real story was that, like most people finishing a PhD, you know, I was completely skint. Um, you know, I was desperate to have social contact with, with other people. Uh, I'm pretty keen to move out of my parents' home as well. So there were a lot of things that I had to get, to get kind of sorted. And, um, I ended up in, you know, I ended up in, in a company that was kind of doing brand strategy. It was a spin out of an advertising agency. Um, and and did a lot of the research there and started to craft a kind of an ethnographic research offer for them um but you know like many startups it was it was it was run by by people that didn't really know how to run a thing um and and after a year i sort of felt well i can probably do this you know i can probably make a better fist of this than they can um not sure that was necessarily the case but um but I thought, you know, I'll hang on to this vision that you can do kind of anthropological research for business that is obviously sort of slightly shorter in duration than classical kind of ethnographic fields work, um, but is richer and more robust and uh, theoretically informed than, than sort of most of the research that I'd sort of you know, come across in the world of broadly speaking market research. So I wanted to try to sort of get the best of both worlds. Um, and, and I happen, you know, like all, you know, back to the kind of happy accidents. Um, I sort of had thrown my CV into an organization called uh, the Industrial Society, which was a think tank focused on the world of work. Um, and it had interested somebody and they said, come and, you know, come and chat and they gave me, essentially, they gave me sort of two or three days a week, as much as I wanted, to kind of be a gamekeeper and poach, to sort of run some ethnographic research uh, around two or three major kind of projects relating to the technology that they were running. Um, and that was just a brilliant lucky break because it gave me some financial security to, you know, to have 
you know, have social contact, to have a kind of a project with big public profile. Um, and it gave me some chance to sort of try and curate and build some client relationships on my own. So, so I ended up being this kind of ethnographer in residence in a think tank and then having ideas bizarre to try to get kind of moving um, off my own back. And, you know, and the two things just sort of work quite well with each other because I had a degree of not, um, I was going to say fame, publicity that related to the publications coming out of the, the think tank. Um, and it gave me a kind of an audience, um, you know, with people that I've never had an audience with. If it was just me in my bedroom. So, um, so yeah, another happy accident, I think. Um, and yeah. And, and so it began. Yeah. Again, many accidents for us in this space, mm. but then you went on, um, you know, eventually making a way to Intel and Intel is, you know, quite a large organization, um, mm research i'd be curious to hear like how you know how what was that difference like we compare and contrast that you know from sort of the small startup space to a larger organization doing research and and i you know we should point out that intel has a history of hiring anthropologists and the research practice there is known to be relatively you know strong right and so what what was that like well i mean that was the attraction right because intel was the kind of pinup for for sort of ethnography and anthropology in the uh, late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, the first anthropologist was hired uh, to Intel in 1998. Um, uh, so, so the attraction was the attraction to, to, to joining Intel was well, this is kind of where it's all happening, right? This and the big names there: Ken Anderson, John Sherry, Genevieve Bell, Tony Salvador. You know, people doing you know pretty pathfinding, pathbreaking work um but what was it like i mean i have to say and i'll be really honest you know ideas bizarre was such a kind of you know it was a fun thing it was us in a you know in a nice office that we rented from an ad agency in a beautiful part of london and and it was ours you know it was a little fun thing of five people um and then i turn up you know in this sea of gray cubicles and sort of cheap carpet and just faceless bureaucracy. And I have to say, I kind of looked at myself. And in fact, I I looked at the person that was hiring me. He'd flown over from Portland, Oregon for, for kind of, you know, to chat through what, what the work was going to look like. And he always said to me, you know, I looked at your face and thought, why have I got this guy to close his business down to join Intel? Um, so there was a little bit of me first off that was, you know, that was not regretful at all, but certainly very nervous about what I'd done. Um, and I remember actually I'd been on a podcast or not a podcast, podcast weren't a thing. I'd been on the radio with Genevieve Bell and somebody had written to me and said, why are you joining Intel? Um, you know, like you've got such a great thing going on there. Why are you joining some big faceless corporation? And that kind of reverberated as I sat in this cube farm and I, and I thought, you know, God, I've done the right thing. Um, I mean, it turns out I had done the right thing, but um, it was a massive shock to the system um, because I think in, as an individual, I always thought, I've always felt like I sort of want to do my own thing. And, and of course, when you work for a large corporation, that's pretty much the last thing you can do. So ultimately, this is kind of like a career-oriented podcast. And so I just want to maybe, again, d- dig into the, the distinction a bit, because oftentimes 
when I am talking to people and I do some career coaching, you know, there's the question of what kind of organization do you want to work in or what kind of mm. like, you know, lifestyle might you want to work or have, you know, kind of work-life mm. balance. Right. So there are some kind of key differences there. There's also the difference of like you just said, right, like agency almost and, and how much control mm. do we have, how much impact might we have. So yeah. um do you do you have any between those experiences, and of course you have Stripe now that you can also refer back to, but yeah. You know, in in Ideas Bazaar, you obviously had as much impact as you desired to have. In in organizations, we sometimes our research gets lost. And so, do you have any thoughts on you know, like, or any comments on sort of the difference between you know a small startup and a large organization in terms of our impact? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, yeah, I have to correct you. I mean, I don't think Ideas Bazaar. I mean, I didn't have quite as much impact as we'd like to have had, but. Um, I think the thing is that I think what interested me about going to a big place was, you know, there's always a sense when you're feeding work into into a large organization as a research company of whatever size, you know, Stripe Partners with 27 people now, but it doesn't really make any difference. You are on the outside kind of passing something in, putting something into the organization. And, and I think what Intel offered me the opportunity to do was to try and understand how organizations think, right? And how is it that that this kind of work that we do, which at some level, yes, it's encoded in documents. You know, you give people reports, you present stuff. Um, But I didn't really know what the sort of the half-life of that kind of work looked like the other side of the organization. Like, how do people actually consume it? How does it impact them? How do they think about it? Um, and if you know that, then you're much better placed to sort of ask a different set of questions, which is, well, what's the optimal way to kind of do this kind of work so that it can have an impact? And I, you know, in a way to fast forward to, to Stripe Partners, you know, I think the way that we really wanted to think about that business at the outset was, you know, I'd worked in a very long wavelength kind of organization like Stripe, uh, like Intel, right, where research kind of plays out over very long periods of time into a very large complex organization um and my other co-founders had had worked you know hacks were a kind of big thing at the time they'd worked much more in this kind of make things you know prototype things let's just get get people working for 48 hours to build something and so we were kind of interested in what it would look like when those if those two things could kind of could kind of come together in some way and I think in part as we tried to think about how we jam them together you know what came back to me endlessly was the sense that you know fundamentally a lot of researchers obsess about their presentations and how they communicate their work which is fine but it it sort of misses a critical piece of this which is that as media theorists would have it, like it's not about, we don't just consume messages, right? When we watch TV, there's lots of meaning making going on. We're not just accepting what we're told, right? So if media theorists work that out in the 80s, like researchers should work that out in the 90s and the 2000s and the 2010s, which is, it's not about your message that you give. It's about not just what gets heard, but also for us at Stripe Partners, what the experience of the research itself, um, what that experience, what impact that experience has on you. So that's where this kind of notion of, of embodiedness sort of came about, really, because we just felt that 
um, just thinking in terms of pure communication is is kind of getting it a bit wrong. And so I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves, but mm-hmm. you know, a portion of that is not just the experience you have, but of course the portion, uh, also a portion of the experience that you know your clients have in a consultative model, and hence why you, yeah. you bring them along, like the story yeah. of you know going camping in California, right? With Dorcel, I think. Um, and so to just stay on that point for a second how you know over time how has that shifted for you were you in the beginning say with ideas bazaar or, or later you know in in intel or, or red really bringing you know a long clients with you or was it much more about you going out into the field experiencing and then still sort of just bringing back in storytelling to them um yeah i think largely until until stripe partners it was very much you know, we do it for you, right? We go and do this work and then we, we tell you what we've discovered and, and why it matters and, and what you should do about it. Um, around the outside, you know, there were, I suppose the word that often gets used is safari, right? Which I think is kind of a fitting word, which is, you know, a little bit of Red Associates. We did some work that was kind of more broadly, I think you could, you know, you could call it kind of safari, and sometimes the projects were literally we need to take a bunch of executives to do a, to kind of watch us interview for a week or a few days in a in a city. Um, so I think um, I think you know the first part, the first time in my career that we really did go all in with clients was was kind of twenty fourteen actually. Yeah. So you know that's sort of interesting because. Without maybe getting too deep in the weeds here, it's almost mm. a little bit of the difference between like business anthropology and design anthropology, right? And, you know, those are, you talk to people and they throw around sort of different definitions of those terms, but I very much sort of look at design anthropology as maybe a, a component of business anthropology, mm-hmm. but it's very much interested in the participatory nature of research and design together, yeah. right? And whereas business anthropology still oftentimes seems a little bit removed and that we are uh, still kind of, you know, going into the field on behalf of the client and bringing it yeah. back. Now, I'm sure you'll find somebody that debates that, but, um, yeah. you know, I, I guess where I'm driving at here is is more of the participatory nature that you're bringing into your work today, which um, wasn't, you know, as in your own career, wasn't always present, but also, you know, participatory is becoming, I think, more entrenched in more places yeah. now, which which obviously is a good thing, but there's also some challenges there. So but to maybe, you know, fast forward to Stripe, um, this point, could you tell me, you know, what challenges have you had with bringing people along? Because that is not something that everybody gets to do today. And so, you know, if they're going to advocate for that, then, you know, that's, that, that raises sort of the bar a bit for maybe academics coming out of, you know, academia and yeah. into business. So anything you've learned by bringing people along? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I've learned that fundamentally it, it really never fails to deliver um but i suppose what you're really getting at is you know have we learned anything in terms of how we sell that as an idea um and as a reality yeah. um and i think um you know again you know not to just endlessly say everything's a happy accident but i think in many ways when we started selling this kind of approach we were doing it with clients for whom the idea of of spending a week out of head office 
felt blasphemous and felt extravagant, felt wasteful, felt expensive, um, and was very difficult for many of them to, to, to sell up the chain. Um, and then, you know, we started working more with technology businesses where, you know, the unit of delivery, you know, a kind of a product manager and his or her team of, of folks, the core team is eight to 10 people. Um, budget sort of less of an issue for businesses that aren't in secular decline, as you were, as you were, as you, as you might put it. Um, and the idea that actually, yeah, you go all in and maybe it is because it's a kind of more of a design, more, more of a participatory kind of mindset that these people have. Suddenly the idea that, yeah, so here's a company that um, that really privileges the idea that we do this with them, that we go into the field with them, and that the, the number of people that optimally would have that experience is a great number for, for Stripe Partners to work with. Um, and and in very fast-moving organisations uh, where people have a fair amount of autonomy compared with a classic kind of traditional hierarchical business um, was a kind of happy accident. It was a match made in heaven. So it's like, well, here's a research company that can kind of make all of this happen, can take us through this process, can help us understand what we're hearing and seeing and experiencing um, and land us in a place at the end of the week where we we pretty much know what we need to do next. We're aligned as a team. We have shared experiences as a team. Um, and, you know, for me, critically, you know, we've had enough time out of the business to focus on the challenge in hand. Um, you know, those stars just, for me, I think, just sort of aligned as a, as a bit of an accident. Um you know, and um, and so once you've sort of hit on something, I suppose, you know, as Howard Marks, a drug dealer, said, if the scam works, repeat it, you know. So, um, you know, it was just like, well, how do we how do we improve on that? You know, how do we just deliver something that's a little bit better every time? And and so, you know, then the job is about sort of just incremental improvements on what fundamentally felt like a pretty decent recipe. So. Okay, so in there, you know, it's easier to sell now today, especially when working with product teams because they're smaller. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, still within the product team, there are differences. And I find, you know, if engineers come with me then and they see firsthand, because I, I work in UX and product management. Yeah. So if engineers are, are coming along, right, then they see it, they get it. I mean, it makes perfect sense to them. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, obviously aligns with the conversation we're going to have later on the book. But- there are still, of course, differences within the team. And so just be curious to just spend a few minutes on that because for any, again, anybody who's kind of coming out of academia and going into tech, which is becoming increasingly the place that anthropologists are going, yeah. you know, the world of product, if you will, at large is yeah. a little bit new. And um, this gets back almost to the impact question in that, you know, sometimes you're the, maybe, you know, you're, you're an embedded model, you're the UX researcher on the team. But, you know, your research is still not being adopted maybe by the PM. You know, maybe they see something different. It, yeah. You know, they, they don't view maybe the research as aligning with the strategy, the product vision, whatever mm. it may be. So in your experience, when you're taking out these teams, anything interesting about the group dynamics there that you see um, that 
you know, or maybe worth sharing anything about how do you, um, aside from them seeing and, and having that embodied yeah. experience, is there anything that you've learned that helps them sort of really appreciate the value of all of this? Um, yeah, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one as relates to kind of, you know, the researcher and your body position, is, if you will, that you adopt when you when you have that, when you have this kind of approach of, of taking people out with you, which is, I mean, this is going to sound sort of very, um, uh, you know, almost sort of weak and non-committal, and and actually probably even unprofessional. But I've become over the years sort of less interested in um, how do I put it? Yeah, the purity of the insight, or certainly the ownership of the insight. So I think what what I've learned, what I've learned through doing this enough times is that our job as a research company often is not to say isn't this insight amazing that we've come up with but rather almost you know it's about transferring the sense of ownership to the team that you're with because there's nothing more powerful than thinking you've come up with a great idea and so and often it is you know, I'm, I'm, I have no problem admitting that often the insights come from the client, right? I mean, it's our job to build on those, to to evidence them, and to uh, to help kind of figure out the, the ramifications and 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 how to communicate it. So, I think one is about generosity, you know, in your body position in terms of where the thing comes from. So that would be a thing to think about. I think as a researcher, like you don't need to be the smartest person in the room. You know, you should be comfortable being a facilitator, if that makes sense, rather than just a smart ass. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Something that's taken me a while to figure out. Um, and I think the other piece is that, um, you know, in, in relation to the dynamics with the team, I mean, again, this is going to sound very sort of um, self-serving and obsequious, but I think particularly tech teams, you know, that we work with the dynamics are really good between these people right i mean uh, partly it's an age thing partly it's a kind of it's a cultural thing within these organizations but there's just so little kind of headbutting going on which in more traditional organizations it seems so much of the work is about headbutting each other and and getting into squabbles about mm-hmm. strategic priorities and organizational politics. And so in many ways, I, I, I think, you, you know, the, the, the cultural dynamics of the teams in these places is, 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 in, is in often pretty much a really good place that's it's receptive. Um, and so as much as anything, our role is just to encourage that and, and to work with it. Um, mm-hmm. And I see, I have to say, you know, I always take my hat off the respect with which teams often treat member, team members t- treat each other. So I think, you know, that really sets people up really well to be open-minded and, and kind of and in a discovery mode rather than a defensive, protective, that can't be true kind of mode. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. Um I think there is a great cultural alignment between the way that tech tech teams and tech businesses try and think about uh, how they work together and 
and the and this kind of research or research in general actually yeah sure yeah i mean the interesting thing in there for me is and if you know for somebody who's listening who hasn't worked in tech yet it this is you know maybe not something you know maybe not an experience they've had but you know a good product team is very self-organizing very flat you know mm. very you know has a high degree of ownership right and so that is very different than the old model and you know you have uh, again, for anybody listening who, who doesn't know it, right, there's many of these sort of product teams that are operating in this sort of self-organizing way. And, mm. and everybody wants to build a product or, you know, not necessarily an entire product, but a product even in the sense of a feature of a larger product that works yeah. and works well and, and uh, you yeah. know, solves the needs of the users. And so there's a high degree of interest and ownership in that. And so, you know, again, I find that, you know, as they see what's happening, you know, with a human using the product, you know, the like clicks because they don't want to build a bad product, right? Nobody wants no, to be exactly. doing producing bad work. And so, especially in the space, it's particularly easy, you know, I, I think much easier probably than organizational work for us as business yeah. anthropologists. Yeah. yeah. I think the other, the other thing that I would add that I, I think, and again, this is going to sound sort of blasphemous, but, um, you know, I, I would like to think, no, and I do think, you know, I believe that organizations like Stripe Partners, but of course many other brands are available, um, you know, are all about doing really rigorous, you know, in data-driven, theoretically kind of informed, great research. But I also think that, you know, to some extent, as Chairman Mao once said, it's it's not about whether the cat is black or white, it's whether it catches the mouse. And I think sometimes the kind of the pursuit of kind of perfection and the pursuit of, you know, that kind of numb, you know, dumb blind, the blind, you know, the sort of blinding flash of insight. Yeah, maybe that comes and maybe you can do something amazing with it. But actually, a lot of the time, it's okay just to be quite pragmatic, I think, about this. Like, have we found out enough to do what we need to do? You, you know, and, and I think it for me, mm-hmm. yeah, I'd love to go deep, you know, and I'd love to be pulled, you know, deep into a problem space. But but sometimes kind of good enough research is good enough, um, you know, and it gets the job done. Yeah. For this iteration. For this iteration or, or you, you know, it's enough to get the team where they need to get to. Um, and I think over the years I've learned, I, I think that, you know, less is sometimes more, um, you know, clarity of, of, of what you present and the tightness of it, you know, is far outweighs kind of volume, you know. Um, so that can go too far, right? I kind of sometimes loathe having to drill everything into a five bullet point TLTR. It feels too reductive. But on the other hand, you know, that's for other stakeholders that may have less time and attention than the people that got to spend a week on the problem. So, you know, um, it's, it's, it's about the audience and the audience need really. Yeah, precisely. And, you know, and the, um, the thing that brings up that, is well, it brings up many things, you know, how we present the work, but also pace of research, right? And and sort of this sort of academic pursuit of you know, these long extended projects. And to your point, you know, we we obviously we generally don't have the the luxury of those kind of projects, although we all enjoy them. That's frequently not our reality. But mm-hmm. you know, if it improves it 
for now and we can keep the teams moving and they are producing mm. you know something that has it adds value and we can do it again right these projects oftentimes keep it being extended right so yeah we can keep adding value and keep everybody moving quicker then ultimately we provide more value to society you know Mm. quicker returns rather than waiting yeah. for a year from now and potentially getting it wrong. And um, so there is actually a lot of value in the speed that we do move. Uh, and I know some people still challenge that, but I think it is very practical, as you say. And um, I, so I'd like to touch on maybe one more thing before we really dive into embodiment. And that's, so of course, you know, in this new model where you always, or maybe not always, but you want to bring people out so that they have mm. the embodied experience. I can see how, you know, they walk away with, uh, you know, with an aha moment. But before that, you know, before you started doing that, before like, you know, in the earlier days, it is, we still have the challenge of communicating what we've learned. And mm. not everybody's going to have the opportunity to sort of go out in a participatory way so is there yeah. anything you learned over the years, or even if you have a project now where you just can't sort of take everybody along for that experience, is there anything you've learned that really helps sell the insights, you know, that helps you communicate, you know, what you learned? Um, yeah, I think one thing that's, um, well, look, apart from the, the blindingly obvious, which is sort of, you know, every organization sort of learns, thinks differently. And so you're kind of, your approach to communicating things needs to be matched accordingly or matched as best as you can, you know, and often that's about, I think, asking your direct clients uh, what's going to work best. Um, I think one of the things that we try and do is, is actually just resort to a kind of a simple old fashioned kind of memo, right? Which is just really, you know, present your key findings the key implications on a sort of word doc PDF, you know, before the presentation. And, you know, I suppose those in the kind of the creative industries who like the kind of ta-da moments, you know, that's anathema to them. But actually, I sometimes think it relaxes people to sort of almost know what it is that they're going to be told before they're told it. Um, and, you know, they're not... Uh, scurrying ahead if they've got access to the deck themselves to find out what the answer is you've sort of told them and then you can kind of explain well how did you get there and then we can have a discussion about what it means so i think one thing that often works is is exactly that right so it's, it's almost telling people what you're going to tell them before you've told them i think that one of the things we've also been exploring is is actually podcasts as a way of delivering a story about the research and some of the findings. And that seems to be working really well for some of our clients. Um, you know, uh, one of whom works, you know, in the music industry or is the music industry nowadays. And so that, um, uh, that seems to fit really well for their, for their culture. Um, and I think we're in a world of increased orality as it were. So I think that's, that's a useful thing. Um, and, um, yeah, that's, I mean, those are two things I've, 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 you know, we've been playing around with and, and, and doing, um, which seem to be working really well for us and, and our clients. And I appreciate maybe you can't go into too much detail about the podcast or, mm. you know, maybe you can share, I don't know. It's, but I'd like to, yeah, I'm presuming you're keeping that internal, right? You're just more using like the audio format, I'd assume, rather than making that a public yeah. podcast. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so then am I correct in assuming that like, you know, you're, you're sort of weaving in the stories? Yeah, it's a mixture of, of, of sort of almost telling the story of, of what the research has found, but then, of course, weaving in excerpts from from the interviews. Um, I mean, obviously, we're in COVID time, so a lot of that is, is you know, by, by default has to be kind of remote stuff. But um, I think as soon as we can get out, out, of, our, um, out of our bedrooms or our, our, our home offices, um, I'd be very keen to really make that much more of, a, of an oral experience. Um, and, and I think it's about meeting people where they are. Um, I think we're all very receptive to different forms of communication in different environments. And sometimes you want to sit down and have something presented to you. Sometimes actually reading a, a two-page memo that tells you basically what did a what a project found and, and why it matters and what you need to do next is the right thing. And and sometimes you know you could be more suggestible as it were to uh a different kind of telling of the story um that brings you a little closer to the data um and gives you a little bit more of a texture feel for what people are, are saying or thinking about mm-hmm. you know the domain that's been studied any reason you're not using video in that um is it just because maybe right now during covid you're not capturing as much or yeah it's funny. I mean, I've always been a bit of a, I've always been a bit of a skeptic of video. I have to confess, um, and I don't know exactly why that is. I think it's partly because, partly because I find it incredibly intrusive in the context of of doing ethnography, um, because my my belief is that actually, if we're going to make half decent film you need a filmmaker and and if you want a filmmaker to come and do an interview with you well hell that's quite a lot of equipment and quite a lot of hassle um and that's quite a lot of footage when you still don't really know like you're still fishing you you know so you've got everything but well the video is actually going to be three minutes long so well that's one hell of a lot of editing if you've done 12 interviews or however many interviews so so then then what you do is you say which we've done before so, well, let's work out what the story is. What's the story we want to tell? What are the insights? And then, and then we have to go back out and shoot it again. Um, you know, because I said, I'm terrible at shooting video and, and I think sound quality is so desperately important. And yeah, it just becomes really complex. So I think if you're going to do, go down the video route, I think you have to do it well. And if you do it well, I think it means almost after the research, it needs to it needs to be a package of film that that is edited to tell a pretty tight story very quickly with high impact. And and that's all great. And then I sort of think, well, what's the shelf life of that? I mean, that feels like a huge investment in time and energy and resource for something that might get watched, what, a few times? Tops? So I may be wrong on all of that, but ultimately I've I'd sort of... I've never been able to quite understand the um, the efforts to which people are prepared to advance the argument, you know, that, that video is what's going to seal the deal here. Um, 
And maybe, maybe I'm maybe I'm utterly wrong, and I take my hat off to everybody who's worked out how to do this and do it well. But um, I don't know. It just doesn't. It doesn't feel to me like the answer. Um, again, because I think it relies too much on this set of assumptions about yeah. If we communicate it in this way, people will understand it as if you know, yeah, in a way they just couldn't if you were to tell them. I'm not so sure. Um, I don't know. No, it's 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 good to think about. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, your approach is from a business perspective makes perfect sense, right? Just in terms of time yeah. and cost that goes into video, uh, and the, yeah. and like you said, how many times it might get watched versus how quickly you can throw together audio, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I I do think that's an interesting perspective versus a media anthropologist who's in academia and has grant funding and kind of maybe yeah. time to to really yeah. put that together. Yeah. I mean, it's not to deny that I think there are some great there are some great kind of video ethnography outfits out there, um, but I think their approach is video first. And I you know we've worked with um, we've worked with several of them, and it's it's fantastic to watch them. Um, here comes the cat. Um, it's fantastic to watch them operate, um, but they are interviewing kind of through the camera, um, which is not wrong or right. It's just what it is. Um, so anyway, um, yeah, I think it's, a, you know, I'm not throwing stones at other people's techniques. I just, I have never really f- found an accommodation with video as a bolt-on that works um in a way that you know justifies the 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 the, you know the investment in it i think all right so now with the book so again the um the power of not thinking do you want to so there's i'm sure a number of people who will be listening who have not read it yet so do you want to kind of give a quick elevator pitch and then we'll dive into some questions yeah, absolutely. It's the sort of it's, it's almost the hardest thing to do. It shouldn't be. I should I should have it all down by pat by now. It's really a it's really a book with a very simple idea, which um, which is that experience matters, and 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 we experience the world through our bodies. Um, our bodies are highly tuned organs, um, sets of organs that um, are central to our perception and our understanding of the world around us. And yet sort of Western thinking um, and probably other thinking too has over the, over the last several hundred years has, has downplayed the importance of the body and how we appreciate and understand and perceive the world and cast a different sort of argument, which is that, you know, the best understanding of the world comes through kind of detached, rational reflection on it, um, you know, through artifacts such as data. Um, and so, you know, where we are now in the world, you know, we live in a world of, of big data and so forth, and and a world in which organisations increasingly, despite everything that we've said before, are hiding behind their own four walls and 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 trying to apprehend the world through streams of data not through experiences of the world so um the book is really an argument about the importance of learning through direct bodily experience how that works and then you know an account of the different a set of different sort of application areas you know creativity design business politics policy making and um 
and the world of AI and robotics. Yeah. Now, I, so, you know, first, let me say great book. Enjoyed reading it. It's very easy to read. Um, mm. Yeah, I found especially, you know, the first third, you know, the sort of history of this duality of, you know, sort of mind body was particularly interesting. I, you know, we oftentimes do think of the brain as sort of this rational center that controls everything. But yeah. I, I, the example that really stuck out for me was actually the octopus yeah. example, yeah. Um, which, you know, I appreciate for the sake of like having those conversations about humans going out and maybe, you know, doing research no, no, no. in the field is maybe a, an odd example. But, you know, it's to think of how, um, you know, I think you described it as the, if you sever off an arm, the octopus can still almost sort of see yeah, um, which was particularly interesting, right? And so it just points yeah. to in nature, you know, right, there are arguments to say that you know we sense well beyond, you know, the, that the brain is not does not hold the the position that we sometimes think it does. And you know, as yeah. long as if we sort of accept that and just sort of maybe move on, it it implies a number of things about you know why we should go out and and use the approach that you're advocating for. But I think it's also worth noting that you're not saying that the other approach is never useful because oftentimes, you know, if there's business people listening to this, they, you know, right there who are quant oriented or sort of, you know, oriented towards that, maybe the other perspective that you can put up, people could put up a wall quickly, but, you know, I think you're advocating for a perspective, but you're also not saying it's the only perspective or that the other one is wrong. Numerous times you do allude to, you know, you know, here's the other scenarios where we might want to use the data for this. And in many ways, it's like, you're almost it's almost a book that is like talking about this sort of classic debate of quant versus qual, right? yeah. where yeah. In, in a very abstracted sense, um, but yeah. all the while still sort of appreciating, you know, while you're maybe making the argument primarily for one, because we sort of, in our roles, we need to make that argument. Yeah. But it's it's really about largely also knowing when is the right sort of time to use what method, right? We go out, we observe, we sort of bring that back. We maybe use a more rational approach to make sense of it all, but it's not just sort of throwing out the old sort of business methodology per se. No. Yeah, that's right. I mean, yeah, no, I think that's very fair. And I, you know, I think it's very easy and perhaps I've fallen into that trap anyway, but I think it's very easy to sort of write a book like this which as you say um yeah i did try to write for a broad audience so uh, the hardcore anthropologists that are listening may find it mildly unsatisfactory in that sense or even very unsatisfactory who knows but i think yeah it's very easy to have a to have a baddie and and then to base a book around a baddie and big data's the baddie well yeah that's easy to say but it's yeah does it's not quite true um yeah, I think what we find in my, you know, we, we find at Stripe Partners with, with some of the work that we do that, you know, we work very closely with, with data science, both in-house and, and actually and, and with our clients. And, yeah, often a, often a, a kind of a qualitative and ethnographic approach is really, really useful for understanding, like, where are the signals, right? Um, what are the signals that a, that a data scientist needs to look at? Um and then, and then when data science people have looked and at for those at, at, at where those signals are pointing in their data, they may need help to understand well what is that data telling us, right? So to your kind of point about it's a classic kind of qual quant, you know, in the old kind of world of market research, you, know, you might start with some qualitative work which 
informs some segmentation and then the segmentation comes back and then you might want to go back out and do some qualitative work to to bring that segmentation to life i kind of think it's the same potential process um and so these things are great when they work together um so maybe it's um, just too pragmatic but i i do think this is about you know in all aspects of life we're better off when we work with other people with different with different tools and perspectives and we learn to be generous about what these can tell us um you know in many ways all of these scientific disciplines are basically a function of their tools and we all have different tools that give us a slightly different perspective on the reality we're trying to understand so it seems obvious to me that you know a telescope and a a microscope are both great tools to have, but they give you a pretty different view of the world. But but you need mm. you need both, I think, if you really want to understand the world around you. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, you so I just want to comment on two things. One, um, you know, you said that you tried to write for a broad audience, which is clear. Um, and you know, yeah. yes, maybe that's not what some academics maybe want to read. But uh, I recently had interviewed Don Podiad, who founded Why the World Needs Anthropologists. Yeah, and he had a nice quote that you know, in the, in the episode that said that we need more bestsellers, right. Yeah. To sort of raise awareness of anthropology. And that basically means we need to write for a wider audience than we have than, than some yeah. have in the past. And that's not to say those yeah. other books aren't great. I mean, those, yeah. we all love to think deep and, and go into those as well, but we need both just like we need yeah. quant and qual and, you know, right. So that, that was one comment. The second comment you mentioned like the signals, you know, coming from the qualitative research, but I also find in my work, um, cause I'm having to do generative and evaluative. And so I also find that it goes the other way as well, where, you know, the analytics give us signals, you know, right all the time about these digital products that then we clarify, you know, and you yeah. can clarify quickly with the qualitative. This is not, yeah. Yeah. You know, a lot of this. And especially in the evaluative space, it doesn't need to be lengthier necessarily and even need to be backed up by theory. A lot of this is, you know, pretty, yeah. you know, just sort of blocking and tackling type research. Um, and so the, the, you know, the, the mixed methods approach is, is really kind of, I think, key as well. But for the sake of um, digging into what it means to sort of do this type of work that you're speaking about, you had a quote in the embodied business section. It was that data without yeah. experience makes little sense and the experience without data has little clout within an organization. And I really, yeah. that was one of my favorite lines out of the book, particularly because the, the, you know, it all rings true, but the last part is also really important, I think, because there is still this quantitative bias or this rational bias within most organizations, or probably you could maybe make the argument that both within most organizations, but also in you know, most departments, maybe not in all, but most departments. And so it helps to have the data to then sell the, you know, these embodied experiences that we capture when we're out in the field. Um, and so that, that was a really, I think, a meaningful way or a good summary to help people understand that, you know, why we really need to work with partners or why we sometimes need to present our own qualitative work in slightly different ways, right? Because, you know, in order for it to have a clout, like you say, you know, the, the data is still needed. Yeah. Um, so I really, really appreciate, you know, that, that line, but to dive now into, to really kind of the, the, the key sort of argument here. So you're essentially saying, and I know for, you know, ethnographers, this may not be uh, maybe mind blowing to all ethnographers, but we need to go out and we need to we need to you know partake in the experience with all of our senses, not yeah. just you know 
not just with our eyes. You you make the argument that you know we have sort of favor the eyes, but really with all yeah. of the senses. So, yeah. could you maybe bring that in? You know, bring some clarity around that through example. Like, how do you do that at Stripe Partners? Yeah. Well, I suppose. Yeah, as you say, I mean, it's, it's not a particularly mind blowing thing to say, right? Particularly for for for, for people who are of, a, of an ethnographic or anthropological inclination. But of course, it's worth remembering that. You know, Ethnography, you know, sounds kind of all signal dancing and, and quite exotic, but of course, a lot of what it's become nowadays is is just an interview. So I think a lot of our practice at Stripe Partners has been about pushing against this tendency for ethnography to essentially become a kind of what I sometimes call a posh interview, right? Um, so, um, so how do we do that to answer your question more directly? One is to think about, yeah, ultimately kind of programming research. And what I mean by that is that if you're going to say, right, we're going somewhere for a week as a team and we're going to understand a phenomenon, uh, we want to program as, yeah, yes, we want to program kind of more traditional research encounters. But alongside that, we want to program a bunch of other things as well. So I, I talk in the book about some work um, we did with with P&G in Portland, Oregon, looking at mainstream kind of sustainable consumerist uh, consumers. You know, during the course of that week, um, we had people going to a whole range of different kind of retail and other environments. So whether it was kind of organic kind of cooperative stores, reclamation yards, uh, we went to a, a kind of vegan yoga studio, uh, we hosted a dinner at the house that we were all staying at where, uh, you know, we had a founder of a kind of local green newspaper come and talk to us. Um, you know, we stripped the house of, of kind of traditional kind of processed foods and, you know, chemical products and and put, you know, organic and natural products in their place. So in a sense, we tried to create um, almost a, like a totalizing experience for the course of the week, right, to really take people on a journey um, and and really to get them to, you know, fundamentally to experience a, an element of, um, of, of the world that they were trying to understand. So for, for me, it's about just sort of maximizing the time that you have in the field and obviously across the course of 18 months of traditional academic field work, you can let serendipity happen um, in the course of a week away on a corporate research trip. You can't let serendipity happen. You have to stage it in some way. So you know, there's an element. So staging makes it sound sort of false, but, you know, you have to build this. You have to program it. Um, and that's what we seek to do for every phenomenon that we're trying to understand we think well what are either the direct experiences where we can give our clients of this or what might be some more oblique experiences that will get at some of the maybe the underlying emotional impacts of the other thing um so uh, and that's you know both serious and sometimes can be quite nice and playful too so um so there's just sort of a lot of thought and planning that goes into creating a kind of a set of composite experiences, I suppose. Yeah, and so I have two two you know, comments, questions on that. So mm. one, I completely get you know why you're planning it in the way you are. It makes you know yeah. makes 
perfect sort of rational sense. But what jumps out at me also is like, you know, the unknown unknowns, right? And uh, it's like a survey, right? We know survey, you know, as an instrument, a survey as an instrument is um, prone to sort of only ask the things we sort of know to ask already. Yeah. So I'm sure you're all doing some research prior to planning. um, But there's also, of course, you know, the chance to miss some things in there. And I get, you know, time yeah. and budget are constraints that we deal with in business. Yeah. Um, but do you have any kind of, you know, interesting ways to, you know, like in the planning process, are you doing any interesting things to try and ensure that you're not missing something? Um, I, I was going to, I thought you were going in a different direction with that, actually. I mean, the, the other thing that we, I, I, yeah, actually almost the last of these kind of studio projects we did before COVID came along was um, was a project with Spotify in a couple of locations in America. I think from memory, wasn't there myself. But, uh, I think it was Atlanta, Georgia, and then um, uh, Pittsburgh. But um, uh, the team had this amazing kind of encounter with a with an Uber driver um, who was... Um, was actually kind of locally kind of well-known rap star. And and I think this, you know, back to our theme of happy accidents, this encounter with this Uber driver, I think sort of transformed in many ways the whole nature of the conversation that our team and the client team had over the course of the week in Atlanta and then the subsequent week um, in Pittsburgh or, or wherever it was. Um, and... And so, yes, some of this, I think, you know, as I said, I, I thought your question was going to be was going to be about this. Actually, that was exactly, I think, what what was is beautiful about this approach that it, it does sort of allow for some of these things to kind of just pop up, and you can follow that hunch, uh, you can follow that conversation, um, and you know, that conversation actually with that guy is is sort of still ongoing in 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 a variety of different ways. Um, so I think we try to leave, you know, despite programming, we try to leave some, some space in there, um, for, for things like that to happen and also plenty of reflection space. And I think one of the things we've found over the years, it's very hard to sell your client empty time in a schedule. All right. Well, why, <laughs> four hours there, what are we doing? Um, you know, that's processing time. That's talking. That's chatting about stuff. That maybe just going for a run together. You know, that's that's time that we need to think about what we're experiencing. As I said, that's very hard to sell. You know, particularly some organisations. You know, I want to see the schedule full. No, I don't think you do actually. But um, um, anyway, um, so yeah, I, yeah. Of course, there's planning that goes up front, and I think we try to. Yeah, you know, sometimes it's you know what we discovered in Portland for this for this PNG project was there was an organic um, laundromat, you know, so it was natural only kind of organic products in this in this laundromat. So it was like perfect, happy accident. We're delighted we're coming to Portland because we've got this great place where the team can go and do their laundry one one evening, um, and then we can hang out there in the cafe. So, um, so yeah. I think we, you know, not every location has everything you need. So that's where the obliquity kind of comes into it. You just need to sometimes make, not make stuff up, but you need to find, you know, experiences that may obliquely get you to where you want to get to. Yeah. And I think the space part, and that's kind of what I was 
thinking when asking my question, but the space part is, is to me, it seems I kind of do the same thing when planning trips. I plan certain experiences, but then leave space for just random things to happen in between, yeah. right? And yeah. or, or to come back to. And so, um, yeah, make, I, I, though I really appreciate how, uh, how hard that is to sell, right? And yeah. so that's a really interesting point, I think, well, for anybody broader, listening, right? like, the, the idea of selling yeah. space and, yeah, and I think there's a broader analog there, right, which is that it's, you know, it is the case that, you know, the clients want to see your discussion guide, right? And early on in my career, I started talking about it as an ethnographic script because the thing about ethnographic script is that you can go off script. and But it's curious, isn't it, that, you know, as a, as a bunch of professionals, I'm certainly guilty of this, you know, we've maneuvered ourselves into a position where one of the kind of parts in the process for selling research is that we you know a form of research which we talk about as being open-ended and of course it is open-ended but you know but we say that and yet at the same time we kind of put this discussion guy in front of clients and say here are the questions that we want to ask them and it's like well you know this seems utterly kind of like contradictory set of behaviors right that on the one hand, we're talking about open-endedness. On the other, we're kind of telling you what questions we're going to ask and in roughly in what order. And, of course, you know, the more experienced you get, the the more comfortable you get uh, going kind of completely off script and and following kind of bunnies down different sorts of holes. But um, I've always thought, you know, it's it's kind of bonkers, really, that as professionals we've kind of painted ourselves into that. What would it look like to say to a client, this is ethnography, I don't have a discussion guide. You know, I'm not going to write you one. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do that. I don't know. Certainly I don't. Um, my company doesn't. But maybe we should. I don't know. <laughs> point well taken. <laughs> uh, on the point of space, the other thought I had, you know, was, so in the book you talk about, you know, the how we sort of give uh some, you know, the eyes are sort of where we oftentimes give a lot of primacy to within the West. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, hearing when when doing research, we're recording. So we, we sort of have the visual. And of course, if you're doing video, you also have captured. We have the audio oftentimes mm-hmm. captured. But when you get into the other senses, the question I have here is, you know, I, I can appreciate how that plays a role in the process. Yeah. But there's also to me like a problem with like, you know, individual memory or organizational memory, right? Where yeah. having like the touch of, you know, touching something during the course of the experience makes that experience, but it's also harder to capture in some kind of way that maybe triggers my, if, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Be curious to hear your thought, but like triggers mm-hmm. my memory when going through the analysis process. Yeah. And so, um, I appreciate that's where some of the space can come in and have the, the ability to sort of have some dialogue around that. But any any thoughts on how, like, you know, be, besides sight and sound, we can sort of uh, retain the insights that come from the other senses? Um, yeah, well, I think there's sort of two, there's sort of two questions that buried in one. I mean, one is one is about actually, yeah, if you adopt this approach, uh you know, you take a team with you. Well, what about the people that didn't come? Right. So, you know, for them, they just get the plain old vanilla, like here's the report. So, um, and I think that's, there's not much you can do about that. I mean, you could shoot great video or or whatever, um, create artifacts, but, but fundamentally there is that challenge. 
I mean, I, I, the way I talk about it in the book, and it's it's not particularly well understood from the kind of the science of it is not well understood, but um, you know, this notion that we remember bodily experiences, you know, in sort of in ways that yes, of course, are sort of cognitive, but are also kind of not cognitive. So yeah, the body positions we adopt in certain cultures, the way that we walk, you know, the, the, those sorts of dispositions are very much ingrained into our bodies. Um, um, Marcel Proust, you know, talks about dipping the Madeleine into in, into his into his into his tea, and that brings back all these memories. So. Yeah, it's not really well understood. I don't think why, you know, the senses are so powerful for bringing back times and places and events and occasions. Uh, and so um, I don't know if I'm really answering your question, but I think uh, in a sense, you know, as I say in the book, the, the, the brain is not a sort of a memory box in the same way that a hard drive is. And so I think we tend to assume that sort of if people tell us things, you know, we will lodge them somewhere in our brain. Um, you know, to a certain extent, of course, that is true unless your brain is a complete sieve. You know, but if I asked you sort of if you learned at school, what are the 10 longest rivers in the world? I don't suppose you could remember them. But if I asked you whether if somebody taught you how to ride a bike or boil an egg or change a light bulb, as a child, it's quite likely that you can still do that. So there's certain forms of, of sort of knowledge, procedural knowledge, as it were, embodied knowledge uh, writ large, you know, that stay with you outside of your sort of conscious control or conscious, your cognitive um, capacity. So, I, and I think, again, organizations sort of emphasize and privilege kind of this propositional knowledge what are our 10 biggest customer segments or, or whatever? Um, but, you know, they probably don't privilege, you know, more nuanced understanding of, of those and experiences of, of those, of those, of those customer segments, if you will, or they don't privilege going out there and getting them um, in a way that will stick with people. Um, and, and, and that they can draw on in, in ways that they're probably not consciously aware of for many years afterwards. Um, and that's what, you know, going back to clients over the years, you know, they've told us, which is this stuff just stays with us because we've experienced it. It stays with us and we can draw from it. It's like a, a well. Um, so a very long and rambly answer to a very good and difficult question. Um, difficult in no, no, not least because... I think the science doesn't really quite help help us explain yet why it is that that sort of experiential um, memories are kind of so enduring. Yeah, and hence the underlying challenge. I I, I give you credit. It's a tough topic to write about. Mm. I, uh, you know, it, it's a yeah, hard thing were, to explain. There, right? there were plenty in, of times when ways, I sat in here. Yeah, there were plenty of times when I sat in here thinking, God, what, you know, what have I done? Um, why have I started on this? It is really, you know, and I think, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's very easy to sound sort of, you, you know, sort of falsely self-deprecating, you know, 
it was a very it was actually quite it was hard to write about it and um and yeah i mean it is a form of knowledge that it that is you know that is by definition beyond sort of beyond words and is is very kind of just at the tip of your fingers at the tip of your tongue it's sort of so difficult to explain what it feels like what an emotion actually feels like or what an experience actually feels like how you know you know it when you're having it and you can almost recreate that by putting yourself back cognitively into that you know event again or that context or that space again you can revisit it and that suddenly triggers something bodily but yeah it's done hard to write about um but 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 hopefully hopefully the book at least makes people aware of like what is it what is this thing of which i'm talking um and they can kind of put their own words or feelings to it yeah it clearly articulates that and um you know i i think it it and even like this conversation you know that the difficulty in sort of explaining an experience is exactly the reason why we need to take people out right so it's almost Mm. you know it has a built-in sort of value proposition of of helping other researchers realize why we should be doing it in a more participatory way with our clients Uh, or if we're internal you know with you know with our other stakeholders say but um so great so maybe to to just sort of pivot and wrap up so you're also involved in Epic. Is there anything maybe you want to say about, you know, upcoming Epic or anything else? Maybe you just want to plug. Yeah. Um, well, there's the Epic conference, um, which is an annual conference. And it's it's one of the primary things that Epic gets up to um, each year. Um, but certainly not the only thing. So what, you know, the, the conference is uh, later this fall, um, it's virtual, but sort of in San Jose, so virtually out in San Jose, um, and it's all about the future this year. Um, and alongside that, you know, Epic has uh, a range of other things going on. So there's a series of training courses um, run by brilliant practitioners um, that are great, you know, building your uh, confidence and, and helping kind of figure out career trajectories. So Tracy Lovejoy uh, has either recently just done or is about to be doing a course. Um, and and alongside that, there's lots of articles written by uh, great researchers. In fact, there's a great article out there right now by somebody called Alexandra McCarter and a colleague at Spotify about building artifactual displays from field work that help, you know, organizations at large understand a, a social kind of cultural environment. And this was about work done in, in some of the emerging markets in Southeast Asia. Um, and yet to be announced, but a sneak preview, but uh, Gillian Tett, the FT journalist and anthropologist, has a book mm-hmm. coming out in June, I believe. And Epic is going to be hosting a conversation with her um about that new book so um and that hopefully you know to dan's dan's point that's uh, probably much more likely to be a bestseller than my book um but um but we'll be in conversation with her at epic um yeah in the run-up to or around the time of of its publication 
Great. Well, yeah, yeah. We all hope that her book will become a bestseller, though. Yours is also great, so I'd recommend it to anybody who's listening. <laughs> I will certainly link to it. Um, is there anything else that maybe you know? Any last sort of recommendations you might have for anybody who wants to get into this line of work? Well, if you want to get into this line of work, you must get into this line of work because, um, so make it, yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, it sounds really kind of naff to say it. Um, I think those of us that are in this space are, are so incredibly lucky um, that we get to kind of go out and be in the world rather than sit in offices all the time except in the last year that we get to think about ideas that we have help try and help people get practical. So, you know, if you want to get into this space, what, what are the best ways to do it? Um, I mean, internships are often a very good place to start. I mean, I know that's also easier said than done often um, because spaces are sometimes limited, but there are a lot of companies out there that do uh, offer internships and, um, Epic actually has a fantastic jobs board, and I think that's a very good place to start looking. Um, and I think Epic in general is a really good place to to get a sense of of what the trajectory of this discipline has looked like over the last fifteen years or more. Um, I would also say, and I'm not, you know, and I won't regret if I get hit up by my by a huge number of people reach out to me but or reach out to others like me in the industry um you know uh i wouldn't in a sense i wouldn't want to be trying to start my career in this space today because i think it's incredibly competitive now it was really easy in a way to sort of to be kind of early in the game because i could just sort of make it up or blag or whatever um so reach out to people and, and and I think largely I would like to think we're all pretty open to helping. We'll jump on the phone. I would certainly jump on the phone, jump on a call, you know, how can I help? Who can I introduce you to? What can I get you, you know, who can I start a conversation between you and somebody else with about? So um so don't be don't be shy. You know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And and I would like to think that most people will get back to you and, and help um i certainly would um so so yeah so hammer away at people and 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 ask um um that's not very useful advice but i think you know yeah you know ask people around you that are in this space for help and advice and input um i'm pretty sure they'll help yeah networking is key and so where can everybody find you where's the best place to get in touch um well yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Ideas Bazaar. Um, not banging on about Brexit quite as much anymore since there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on stripepartners.com. Um, but yeah, put to, to my earlier point, I, I'm also first name dot last name at stripepartners.com. And, you know, if you want to get into the space and you want to spend half an hour talking about, you know, where you're at, what you're thinking... I'm super happy to have a conversation with you. Um, We'd be delighted. I'd probably do it more than I probably should, but I'm, you know, it's it's about. I've I've loved this career, and and I'm really happy to see help people get into it because I think it's just a great way to spend your working life. 
Yeah, great. Well, we'll end it there. Simon, thanks so much for your time, uh, for all that you shared. Book is great. Again, recommend everybody pick it up and I'll, I'll link to it. So appreciate it and uh, be well. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to the Anthropology and Business Podcast. To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success, visit my website at madarts.me, where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.